I'm Nora McInerney. Welcome back to another episode of the Terrible Reading Club. It's been a while since we've done one of these, and that is, as always, my fault. The Terrible Reading Club is the kind of book club that I have the capacity to join and the capacity to manage, which means we meet irregularly and preferably in my house so that I don't have to go anywhere. I make these episodes primarily because I love to read. I love to read. I read so many kinds of books. And like I said, I don't belong to a book club. I'm also a writer. And I know that one of the hardest things about being a writer is trying to get people to find out about your books. So the books that we talk about here are books that I have read, I have loved, and I want to talk about with you because I feel like you will probably also like them. Sometimes they are fiction, often they are memoir or nonfiction, but today is something very, very different, a kind of book that we definitely have not done before because it is the kind of book that I have never read before. The author wrote this book the way that many authors have after experiencing a huge loss, in this case, the death of his mother. That's kind of how I see it, written by someone who's been there, but does not have the qualifications, does not have the credentials to really address grief in a therapeutic way. Although, if it is of use to you, and some people have said that, that is fantastic. That is an amazing side effect of the book. That's Jason Roeder, the author that we are going to get to know. He wrote the parody grief book, Grief Strike. Jason is a comedy writer. He has written for McSweeney's. He has written for The Onion. He is actually the writer behind some of my favorite Onion headlines, some of, I believe, the most iconic Onion headlines, including No Way to Prevent This, says only country where this regularly happens. He was writing, of course, about mass shootings. As a part of my job at Terrible Thanks for Asking, I do get sent a lot of books. And because of the subject matter on the podcast and because of the subject matter of my own books, these are often sad books. I often get sent grief books. I am not always in the headspace to read another grief book. And right after all of my losses, I was definitely not in the space to read a grief book. Some people are. I was not. I got a whole pile of them. I did not read a single one. Many of them were too clinical. Many of them were simply too close to home, too on point, and yet so far away because I was in the middle of it, and these people had had the time and the space to process it, to create meaning from it, and I just wasn't there. What I wanted was escape. What I wanted was laughter. I read Grief Strike a few months ago on an airplane, which is one of my favorite places to read. I can sit down, put on some noise-canceling headphones, open a book, and sometimes even finish it by the end of the flight. That happened with Grief Strike, but I was also very concerned that the flight I took with this book would be my last. I laughed so hard 
in a confined space where you're trying to suppress your laugh and that only makes you laugh harder that I thought for certain I was going to be whisked off the plane as soon as we landed by an air marshal and placed on the no-fly list. Thankfully, that did not happen. But if you're thinking about picking up this book, you probably want to know that it's more than just funny. And it is. So I had Jason tell us some of the benefits you can expect from picking up his book. 38% more confidence you'll somehow make it out of this. 48% less mind-body dilapidation. 63% better graveside posture. Sobbing, 18% less convulsive. 49% more success keeping it together till you get to the parking lot. 21% less wishing it were you. 94% more wishing it was some stranger. 50% less wondering what they're doing now, if anything. 88% less likelihood of channeling anguish into artistic projects for which you are not at all suited. And 52% less regret over eulogy that lacks certain pizzazz. I mean, these are just facts. That's the thing. This isn't hype. This is just truth that uh, people can benefit from. Yeah. And I mean, if you can get to 18% less convulsive sobbing, that's something. No one's done that. No one's done that. I would love for you to tell our listeners what makes your grief book superior to all others. Uh, That's a good question. Well, I think um, a lot of other grief books are sort of um, sort of laden with sincerity um, and expertise. And I think, you know, a lot of people who are going through grief, um, they don't really need those things or want those things. And so I thought, well, let's write a book that's mostly jokes. I, I think a book like that caters to that very specific audience. And so that's what I did. So it's... Um, it's a resource of of a sort, um, but it's really more of sort of an insane companion. Before you became a leader in the grief space, which I think it's safe to say you are at this point, um, what was your experience with grief and grief books? I didn't have a lot. I mean, I my grandmothers had passed away and I attended their funerals. And, and, and of course, those were sad, but it's different when you're a teenager and your grandmother dies. A friend of mine died in high school. That was a bit more traumatic because he died suddenly, obviously. Um, he was hit by a car, actually. Oh. Um, and it was my first and only experience with an open casket funeral. Did not see that coming because Jewish funerals were pretty much all closed casket. And so just strolling in there and, oh, there, there he is, was, was pretty heavy. Um, beyond that, not really. Um, and then when my mother died, I, I didn't really buy books. I just kind of, I just kind of toured the internet uh, to find resources that seemed like a capable person was behind them, although who even knows who even knows what kind of psychopath is telling you how to sort of manage your emotions. But there is good advice out there, although I just sort of grabbed it like I'm just foraging. I'm just like grabbing it the way like an animal might grab berries in the forest, you know, that kind of thing. 
One part of your book that I love, I do love the little sincerity corners. I loved knowing these little insights about who your mother was specifically that she would badmouth any writer or any uh, late night host who didn't hire you. I fully agree. That's the kind of mother that I aspire to be. That's the kind of mother-in-law that I have, by the way. I have two mothers-in-law where anyone who doesn't like me has bad taste. <laughs> and I love that. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're fatally flawed. My mother was a she loved Jay Leno, and I applied to the applied to every show at, at a certain moment, but I um, I didn't get the job, and she had this deep sense of betrayal. How can someone she admired not recognize what was within her son? So it was a real moment for her. Jason's mom was, of course, more than just a Jay Leno hater, and when we come back, he's going to tell us about her. Any grieving person can tell you that what they don't want you to ask is, well, how did they die? No, really, tell me, give me every detail, leave nothing out. I want to know graphically what happened to your person, what happened to their body, their brain. How did you feel? How did they feel? We don't want to answer that question. What we want you to ask is something more like this. I want to hear more about your mom. Tell me about your mom. Well, um, she was a nurse, which I think I mentioned in the book. She was a sort of roving geriatric nurse. So this was in South Florida. So there's no shortage of the elderly, no shortage of people who need their dressings changed or their catheters reinserted. And she did it all. Like she got down and dirty. You know, her trunk was filled with catheters and gauze and disinfectant. And she would drive everywhere, every neighborhood, from the condos to trailer parks. And she worked really long hours. She would leave the house. She'd wake me up at 5.30 to tell me she was leaving and what chores had to be done. You know, she 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 really cared about these people who sometimes were not the nicest to her. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess this is kind of a saintly portrayal, but it's accurate. You know, and even when she started getting sick, she kept working. She kept, like, ministering to people. I think to the extent I'm kind to anybody, that's where it comes from. Um, my dad is very nice, too, which is not to say my dad is an ogre. He is not at all. He's a nice man. <laughs> but I, I like to think that rubbed off on me, and I, I learned something about how to be with people from her. Yeah, I think it's easy to sort of sanctify the dead, but sometimes people who die just were good too. You know, some good people die, unfortunately. Bad people do live forever. I will I'll say that. <laughs> That's an irritating thing. That's an irritating thing about having someone that you love who was lovely die. My dad's dead and uh, you know, and he was complicated, so you know, like people had mixed feelings about my dad. Um, I, I thought he was, I liked him a lot and he also had some flaws, but my husband was just like truly across the board. Great. Right. Like funny, kind, made everyone feel like good about 
wherever they were. It made people feel like, you know, the party could not have possibly started until they arrived, mm. even if the party was like, you know, the line for the impound lot to get your car right. back. <laughs> like you're just that kind of person. And I could not stop looking around at all the bastards I knew and being like, you're still here. Right. <laughs> you're just going to keep persisting, aren't you? Okay. 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 Yeah. So you're, you're going to make it to 97 clearly. <laughs> Great. Um, and, you know, and, uh, and all these other people, um, aren't. Yeah. I think also you mentioned your mom was just, she was in a caring profession and she was also a caring person. Those things don't necessarily always go no, together. I wonder how that work, working with the elderly, working with people who are at the end of their lives affected her own sense of her own mortality or informed you know, the decisions around her end of life care or the way she wanted to be remembered or memorialized. I, th I, th I think the work that she did gave her insights that probably made her feel more comfortable in certain settings. But after a while, she just wants to go home. You know, like she knew hospitals well enough to know she did not want to be there. And, you know, maybe, maybe having inside knowledge, maybe it's more of a, of, of a hindrance than a help. Maybe it exacerbates your fear because you sort of understand things. People can't slip things by you. They can't like, you know, they can't evade um, the way they might be able to do with someone like me. I, at one point in time, I don't even think anyone said this, but I told my husband that he was getting like a vitamin IV. He was getting chemo. I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? I mentioned it to us every week. And I mentioned it to his doctor and he was like, what do you think? Right. But I was like, well, whatever. He believed it. And so did I. And he leaves feeling great. So maybe just let us believe that he's getting. Like, right. He's like, you think he comes here for vitamins? I was like, I don't know. I didn't write anything down. How would I, how would I know? It looks like vitamins. It's, you know. It's happy serum. I mean, yeah. there, there you go. Okay. And and I told him that, and I'm not walking it back. So you can, you, right. you can fact check. You can do that if you feel it's necessary. But I do think that there is a benefit to being dumb. There's a benefit to being dumb, especially in like the face of, of our own mortality and just the end of our lives. Like I would love to maintain my dumminess right up until the end. That's what I would like. That's my dream. I think so too. I mean, I, I think I would like to, I would have maybe like six months of runway to sort of get my affairs in order and to maybe do, you know, one or two of the things on my list that I would like to do of the hundreds I will never get to. But I would love to just kind of given that window, just kind of drift away. Um, yeah. Watching, watching TV, you know, yes. um, or something. Um, yeah. I, I want to watch real housewives, only old seasons where I know what's going to happen. Right. And uh, revisit a simpler time, revisit 2008, revisit 2009, <laughs> revisit those, 
those glory days. That's what I would like to do. It would not take me six months to get my affairs in order. And that's not a brag. I simply do not have that many affairs. It would just be, everyone knows my passwords. It's always the same one. I'm easily robbable. (laughs) Well, I, 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 I could be flattering myself. It's possible I could wrap it up in a day. It's it's possible I could wake up early, could wake up at seven, and it's all sorted by seven the same day. It could be. The more I think about it, the more the, the more that window starts to narrow. Actually, <laughs> I was like six months. Yeah, Whoa, six what months. What am I doing? <laughs> what do you? You have a complicated estate. Okay, how many properties <laughs> no. are involved in this? How many heirs? <laughs> uh, I have I have a one bedroom apartment. And a cat and her girlfriend, and I think the inventory is just about done. Yeah. We'll be right back. Jason's book is obviously very funny, but it's also incredibly sincere. It's very clear that he loved his mom and that writing this book was a way of processing that love and that loss. I think there were moments when I wondered if I was doing it right, feeling it deeply enough, which I know is is not uncommon, right? At my mother's funeral, I was I was pretty much dissociating, you know, that was my experience of it, which is my lifelong coping mechanism and so it's it's familiar to me but you know th- there were people who were of course sobbing and i thought wow wh- why isn't that me isn't that supposed to be me i feel like it should be me i feel like that person but i'm not i'm probably doing a bad thing i'm probably being a bad son a, a, a dishonorable son and I, I understood it even then that people are different and they will process what is going on in their own way. And, you know, like in the years since, like certain things will really devastate me that are unexpected. Like, you know, I, I have her voicemail saved and it's like she's calling because she's on her way to the mall to get a new cell phone because she can't get it to work. And, you know, that just destroys me. But there there was a period when I thought I was a bad griever and a disrespectful one. Um, Mm. Even when I was writing the book, I'm like, well, why is it that I have the capacity to do this? Shouldn't I not be able to do this? Maybe I'm bad for being able to. And I get it. I get it now. And I get it. I got it then, too. But there were there was still that emotional you know sense of i guess well guilt that like how 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 can i do this well you can do it because you're just who you are and that's you know it's the only explanation required one of my favorite parts of the book was about uh shopping for caskets <laughs> oh yeah I guess this is standard but i did not know this was the situation I mean, most of what I knew about funerals, like most people's from movies, and so someone dies, and then there's a cut, and then everyone's in a chapel. And then it's like, well, someone has to buy that thing. And that was my father 
and I, and there's an actual PowerPoint. They actually boot up PowerPoint. And you can, there are all kinds of very delightful caskets you can choose from. And, and even then it's like, well, you could buy anything from a, a wooden box. Like they would. A coffin. We learned that's caught because my brother kept going like this and going, he wants a Dracula box, right? It's like this. And the woman was like, that's a coffin. It's a coffin. <laughs> Should not love me and my brothers at all. <laughs> it's like you're just shopping. You're like you're shopping on Amazon. You're picking out features. You're picking out um, frills and the features. The features. You're like I don't know. Like and the silk on the inside. And you're like that would be nice. I feel like you know doesn't my mom deserve silk? We haven't buried my mom yet. My mom would not want silk. She'd want a coffin like my dad made by Trappist monks in Iowa. <laughs> no frills. <laughs> Okay. My grandpa was buried in a literal pine box, Jason. <laughs> a pine box. That was the first option. And like, no, mom is not pine box material. She's she's mahogany, at least, you know? And because once you upgrade from that, then it's like, well, the woman in question um, would frown on this. She doesn't want like 30 oak trees to have been felled you know, for her casket and then with like gold handles and scroll work done by like artisans in rustic Italy. You know, she doesn't want that. She wants something nice, but tasteful. I don't know. I don't want to project like, did your mom drive like a, like a Camry by any chance? Oh, uh, yes, she did. <laughs> Wait, did I mention that? I didn't mention that in the book. I don't think so. Just she sounds like a Camry kind of yeah, gal. Yeah, that was that's what I associate her it's with. It's a great most. car. It's a great car. It's a nice it's car. It's a nice car. It's not flashy. No, it's a okay. great car for spending all day in, which is what mm -hmm. she did. So you got your mom a Camry. We buried her in a Camry, actually. Yeah, it, yeah. it was. <laughs> it was unorthodox, but um, they they can do anything, you know. And Toyota uh, paid for part of it. It was nice. They, they get they get first placement on the headstone. <laughs> they do. They they do. You do have. She does have the Toyota logo on the headstone. That that which is unusual. But we are gathered here today in honor of Toyota Thon and Jason's mom. Okay. The, the the savings won't last as as life itself will not last. Yeah. Get the rabbi to say that it was um, difficult. And even if you can get a funeral sponsor, you also still have to find a place to, you know, put your loved one. You have to pick a place. And my husband did not want to be buried because he thought it was weird. And also he was like, oh, man, what are you going to do? Like bring our kid and be like, huh. There he is. <laughs> there Pointing at the ground. Yeah. Yeah. There he is. So I dumped him in, I mean, well, he was cremated, so I didn't dump, I mean, what was left? The 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 little bone rocks, the little bone dust. I just put it in a river. I just put it in a river. And so he's sort of everywhere, nowhere. Jason's mom was buried. So after picking out the mahogany casket, they also had to pick out a plot in a cemetery, which if picking out caskets felt like shopping at Amazon, picking out a plot feels like buying real estate. 
because it is buying real estate. The Lagoon View would was like twenty thousand dollars, and that and that's like you're just you're, you're just on the shores of this lagoon, and she would not have liked that. But we did find a spot that was you could see the lagoon. I mean, it's 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 near it, but it's not right there, and it costs a lot less. And it's it's there's a bench nearby, and there's a shady tree. So it's a nice spot. There are lots of opportunities to be upsold, and that was one of them. Like, do you want them with a view of of, of this body of water? And it's like, well, they don't really have a view of anything. You know, they all have the same view in a sense. <laughs> but where we were, though, like when people come to visit her, this is Florida. So um, she's in the shade, which is important. Um, there's a bench so people can can sit and so it's actually a good spot for um for people who come to see her i want to talk a little bit about grief etiquette um because there kind of like is none right so i don't know if you saw um an excerpt of this on on the internet and it's varied iterations, but New York Magazine um, Coastal Elites came out with a bunch of rules about etiquette. And number 14 was do not send an edible arrangement. You mean in in, in this circumstance? Like in any circumstance, it was basically it was like, it was like, no, 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 nobody wants it. They suggested sending a grief <laughs> a roast turkey. <laughs> Interesting. Over fruit on skewers displayed in a pleasing way and often dipped in chocolate. I had a strong reaction to that. I loved my edible arrangement. And I guess I just am putting you on the spot to see where you would land on this kind of hot button issue. Well, first of all, most gestures are appreciated because the gesture was made, but I, you know, I, I remember when I came back from Florida after um, I was there for like two months and I had no food in the house and I was ravenous and, you know, someone had sent me cookies and I just like ate them all immediately. So anything edible sent my way was appreciated. Um, a turkey would be fine. An edible arrangement Sure, I will take some melons shaped into tulips. Why not? Like I'm, I'm not going to <laughs> object. Why not? It's 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 not some breach in etiquette. It's it's not problematic at all. It's like great. It's nourishment. They they seem to foresee that I would be uh, short of food and maybe not in in the in the frame of mind to cook. But no, I, I would not add that add that to some taboo list of things not to receive. Yeah, I was really upset by it. And if anything, I was upset that I did not receive enough edible arrangements. Like I'm not cooking for myself. Not it was like the only thing because it was right there, you know, right. like the real danger is just expecting them all the time. You know, yeah. like you sort of wake up <laughs> and like where where's my strawberry rose? And then you start to resent the fact you don't have it and yeah, it's just a slippery slope. That that's the only danger. That, that I can foresee, yeah. This book, even though it's so, so funny, there's also so much sincerity behind it. You can't write about, you know, picking out uh, 
casket for your mom without having first lived through it or trying to, you know, memorialize somebody or eulogize somebody without first attempting to do it. And I'm wondering what writing this book did for your grief. I wrote it during the pandemic. My mother died um, uh, at the end of August in um, 2019. You know, I, I was wondering, what am I going to do with myself? I wasn't working. I wasn't seeing people except my girlfriend. So it, it, it allowed me to, I think, regulate my grief, my emotions in general. I could write jokes, which was a source of pleasure. Um, it's also a problem to solve, which is something I like about it. And so I could enjoy those as- aspects of it. And in doing that allowed me to sort of not keep... Uh, my feelings at bay, that's kind of impossible, but just to kind of, you know, keep them at um, arm's length for a time, I could push them aside when I just didn't want to spend all day with them. So that's, I think, what it did for me. I would like to say that I have a really deep, deep understanding of it, having written the book, but I'm not sure... I think that's just a longer process. I think the book's function primarily was just uh, to protect me, I think, in a way. Mm. The deeper insights are sort of coming or hopefully will come now, right now, or, you know, into the future. I think this book, whether or not you intended it to be, is a kind of memorial to your mother and to the kind of love she gave you and the kind of person that she raised, right? Just so proud of how funny you are. And this book is so, so funny. But there are so many moments of sincerity and I would love to get your thoughts on memorials. This is just a little section called uh, You Are the Memorial. So uh, just so you know, I, uh, I'm not a great performer slash reader. So if you want to dub in a British audiobook reader from Audible, I, I would not object at all. In the end, your memorial may be as simple as allowing your loved one's example to guide you, to gently take control of higher functioning in your brain, like an alien parasite that literally nourishes itself on thought. Think of the qualities that made your loved one a person worth grieving for in the first place, and not some rando who kind of has your nose, but who could burst into flame in front of you and not alter your plans for cosmic bowling. We're not necessarily talking big-ticket triumphs either. It's not about climbing a mountain they climbed or evading an international manhunt they evaded, but maybe just their kindness or their generosity. Asking yourself what your loved one would do is a way to keep them alive time and time again. When you check on the elderly neighbor you ordinarily would have left alone until you heard audible groans through the walls or build a wheelchair for an injured mouse that has no idea what the fuck to do with it, you'll know you're not doing it alone. What could be a better tribute than that? 
Thank you so much to Jason Roeder for joining us here today. We will link his book, Grief Strike, in the show notes. You are listening to an episode of The Terrible Reading Club, which is a part of Terrible Thanks for Asking, which is a part of Feelings & Co. We are an independent podcast production company, an independent little group of scrappy, I don't know what I was going to say, like scrappy little rapscallions. We are just a bunch of little people out here trying to make some podcasts We love our listeners. Listener support makes our show possible. If you would like to find out more about how to support our show and get ad-free episodes of our back catalog, bonus content, and more, you can go to ttfa.org slash premium, and we will link that in our show notes as well. This episode was produced by Claire McInerney and Megan Palmer and Marcel Malikibu, Jordan Turgeon, Eugene Kidd, Larissa Witcher, and also myself, Nora McInerney. If you have books that you would like us to include in the Terrible Reading Club, you can email us. Our email address will also be linked in the show notes, but terrible at feelingsandco is our email or you can call us at 612-568-4441. And if you've listened this far, you should also know that I spent a significant part of the work week trying to convince Claire about the beauty of an edible arrangement. And then I sent her one because you do not need to wait to send somebody an edible arrangement. I have a new tagline for them if they want it. Fresh fruit served cute for free right there. New tagline.